Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 7 this morning. We want to finish out the chapter, Romans 7, 21 through 25. And uh, so uh, if, as you are getting there, uh, the title of the message is uh, The War Within. You know, we're really looking forward, some of us are, to getting to the victory chapter of Romans chapter 8, but we're still in the struggle of Romans chapter 7 this morning, okay? We're going to finish it out here. And every, every verse, every word has a purpose here. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. Kind of complicated text in some ways, but uh, give me grace to teach. Thank you for the Holy Spirit's ministry. He's the ultimate teacher. So have your way in our hearts and our lives as we study the Word now together. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you'll note on the overhead, uh, the theme of Romans is the righteousness of God, the gospel of God. And we have worked our way down to that section on sanctification in chapters 6 through 8. Well, in Romans, after presenting our universal sin problem, Paul then develops the gospel truth of justification by faith alone as exemplified in Abraham. First comes justification, and then sanctification. Now, major theological problems and contradictions develop when people confuse justification with sanctification, or vice versa. For example, those who try to make baptism a matter of justification in Romans 6 end up with a work salvation, which is heretical. In truth, justification belongs with faith alone emphasis in Romans 3 through 5. And then building on that, sanctification, how we should then live, belongs to chapter 6. So note the flow of thought here in Romans. First, uh, he develops the theme of our universal sin problem. Chapter 1 through 3a. That's followed by justification by faith alone in 3b through 5. And then that's followed by sanctification. Simply means set apart how we should then live in verses in chapters 6 through 8. Now I have a friend that describes his relationship with his previous wife as complicated. And this really describes our present relationship with sin. It is complicated. And we are conflicted. Now, we're dead to sin, but sin's not dead to us. We're not in the flesh, but the flesh is still in us. It's complicated. And we as believers are conflicted. Now, I often ask fellow believers, how goes the battle? It's often said you should be kind to everyone you meet because everyone you meet is fighting a great battle of one kind or another. And for the Christian life, that is certainly true. We are in a war, spiritual warfare. We're all in a battle, a great battle. A pastor said when he got into the ministry, at first it was like a honeymoon. Things were going great. Then as he went along, it began to feel more like work. And then finally, when he persevered in the ministry for a while, he came to realize this is war. Well, this describes the normal Christian experience as, as well. It's a war involving a series of battles until we get to glory. As we go along in the Christian life, we discover there is a war taking place inside of us. 
There's several fronts to this war, but uh, we're talking about the war inside. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. It is this war within that Paul describes in Romans 7, 14 through 25. In Romans 7, 21 through 25, Paul describes this conflict in terms of twos, T-W-O, twos. Two eyes, two laws, two cries, and two slaveries. I'll put it up on the overhead there. <clears throat> the two eyes, I delight in the law of God. Contrasted with, oh, wretched man that I am. Two laws, the law of my mind versus the law of sin. To Christ, who will deliver me? Versus, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then to slaveries. I myself serve Really, the idea here, serve as a slave, related to the word doulos, slave. I, I myself serve the law of God in contrast with, in the same sentence, governed by the same verb, with the flesh, the law of sin. Well, in Romans 7, Paul explains that, yes, God's law is spiritual, but he fails to live up to it. And in this failing, he is said, he calls himself carnal. Sold under sin, Romans 7, 14. As a Christian, he desires to be obedient, but in the failing, he does what he hates. He states this dilemma twice, as seen in Romans 7, 15, and then again in verse 19. Now, he explains this bent towards sin is no longer him, it's no longer I, that is, Paul, the new man, doing it, but rather indwelling sin, which is to say, his old sin nature. Now, both the desire to do good and the pull towards sin relate to I, as Paul describes himself, and thus he is conflicted. Paul now in Romans 7, 21 continues to describe this conflicted experience as a Christian. Now remember, we are now in the section of sanctification and not justification. Justification is an already established reality on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. The issue he is grappling with here is sanctification or Christian living and the ongoing battle with indwelling sin or what I call the sin nature. Let's pick it up, verse 21. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Paul, in his Christian experience, has found something. He has discovered that as a Christian, he wants to do good. And yet at the same time, evil is present in him. He has discovered that the Christian experience is conflicted. That's what he's telling us. And he describes this evil present within him as a law. It's a work of law, as it were. In Romans, Paul uses the word law in different ways. Context tells us what is the sense that he is meaning at any particular point. 
Sometimes he uses the word law in, in referring to the law of God. But sometimes it simply means principle or rule, which is the case here in verse 21. Now, the law Paul is talking about here is the indwelling sin principle within him. The sin nature within us likes to operate as law. It likes to give orders. It wants, us, it wants to function like it's in charge. It wants to take command and have us obey fleshy desires. Now, we are told not to obey it, but still, it is ever-present with us, and we constantly feel its pull and pressure. Back in chapter 6, Paul said, Therefore, do not let sin reign, don't let it reign, in your mortal body, clearly, in this physical body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Now, the fact that Paul says, do not let sin reign, means that it is possible to do so. It wants to reign, but we are not to obey it. And furthermore, Paul says, the new man, the new nature, wants to do good. Now, the wanter in the new man desires to do right. But at the very same time, the principle of evil is ever-present. Its influence is ever there and ready to pounce. Remember what God told uh, Cain back way early in Genesis. If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. It's personified as lying at the door. It's crouching at the door. And its desire is for you to pounce on you and overtake you. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. What's going to rule here? Is sin going to rule? And, of course, sin did have its way with him. Now, the unbeliever, being in bondage to sin, has no power over it. But Paul is showing that as believers who now have a new nature within us, we still have no power over the sin nature. We have holy desires. We want to do good. But simply wanting to do right is not enough. And it's right here that the believer feels the pull of sin most acutely. You see, it's in wanting to do good that we are most profoundly aware of our inability to do so as we ought to do. A swimmer swimming downstream with the current has no idea how strong the current is until they turn around and try to swim against it upstream. Now, my fellow believers, as those who are repentant, we are now swimming against the current, and we find it is too strong for us. Without God's help, we're prone, we're prone to fail, we're prone to frustration. And this is Paul's testimony in Romans 7. Note he describes the back and forth here in the struggle. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Now, the term inward man is used three times in the New Testament, in each case by the Apostle Paul. In the other two examples, as seen in 2 Corinthians 4.16, and then again in Ephesians 3.16, Paul clearly uses this terminology to reference Christians. And so it is here as well. The inward man refers to the new man he now is in Christ. 
this new man delights in the law of God. This delight is not something that is ever shown to be true of unbelievers. They are consistently in rebellion to God and his law. It is believers who delight in God's law. In various places in the Psalms, we see this brought out. Uh, the blessed man in Psalm 1-2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. Psalm 19, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And then again, Psalm 119, verse 47, I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. The word delight is found only here in the New Testament. It's a strong word that has a sense of rejoicing in, rejoicing in something. It's the idea of joyfully accepting. To delight in God's law is to desire to follow the path of obedience. This is the emphasis of the whole of the Old Testament, by the way. God blesses obedience as seen in the law, and he curses disobedience. The new nature delights in pleasing God. It desires to be obedient to the enduring moral law of God. Now let's talk about this idea when he says he delights in the law of God. What does that mean for us in terms of New Testament believers? Let's talk about this just for a moment or two here as far as the law, the law of God. The Mosaic law was given only to the Jews. It was never given to the Gentiles. And it was a unit of one, 613 laws in total. Whosoever shall break one law is guilty of breaking the whole thing, James 2.10. So it's a unit. It was never a means of salvation. No one under the rule of the Mosaic law ever attained salvation by keeping the law because nobody could keep it. Well, no one is under the rule of the Mosaic law today. It has been set aside as a legal code to live under. However, all people in all times are accountable to the glory of God as a holy standard. As seen in Romans 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are still accountable for the glory of God standard. Now, the glory of God is his character and his nature. Really, it's who he is. In the book of Exodus, uh, the glory of the Lord is shown to be synonymous with the name of the Lord, and hence his very nature and character. Now, the Bible says that God is love. This defines the very person of God. This is the very glory of God. God's nature never changes. And this is the standard to which all people are accountable. We read in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, he brings in the law. It says to those who are under the law, yes, the Jews, but then he makes application far beyond the Jews. It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Application is made not just to the Jews, but beyond that to the whole world. The standard presented in the law, 
everyone is found to be guilty of breaking. And that's what he says, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, the glory of God's standard is represented in the law. Now, the whole of the law is summed up by Jesus in loving God and loving your neighbor. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, according to Jesus in Matthew 22. Love transcends the law because it defines God himself. But this standard of love is also reflected in the law. So today, people are not under the formal law as a code, but they are responsible to the glory of God love standard represented in the law. The issue is the glory of God. The issue, therefore, is not accountability to the law as a system of rule, but accountability to the glory of God, which is represented in the law. That's a major distinction. People of all times are accountable to this glory of God standard. Now, this love standard is always in view, pre-law, under-law, and post-law. In other words, the standard of God himself is always the issue. What the law did is reveal this standard in a pronounced way that enhances what was previously known only in the conscience of man. In his conscience, you see, man knows it is wrong to lie, steal, and kill. But the law magnifies this reality. As a code, the law was only given to the Jews, but it illustrates universal truth, namely that all come short of the glory of God's standard. Now, no one measures up to the glory of God's standard as revealed in the law. This is Paul's very point in Romans 3. And this continues to be a present tense lawful use of the law. It shows us the holy standard of God, and it shows we all come short. Now, Revelation is progressive. God revealed himself in various ways and in the order that he did for a very specific reason. You see, the law was given to reveal God's holy character and therefore man's sin with even greater clarity. Then comes Christ, and he brings in grace on a whole new level. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Under law was bondage. Grace comes and brings sweet relief under Christ. Now, this reality of the glory of God's standard, as revealed in the law, is consistently brought out in, guess where? The New Testament. You say, really? I don't think we have anything to do with the law. Well, we don't, yes and no. This glory of God's standard, as revealed in the law, is consistently brought out in the New Testament. You see, it continues to be the measuring stick by which we ought to live. But it is only made possible by the Holy Spirit's empowerment. Paul will get to this in chapter 8 and then again in chapter 13. Let me show you what I mean. Chapter 8, verse 4 that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then in chapter 13, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, not steal, not bear false witness, not covet. If there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And again, Paul hammers this point in Galatians chapter 5. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do, do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. What's that word? Well, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul consistently applies this love principle, which is the glory of God's standard as revealed in the law. The reason he does this is because it is the transcendent love standard to which all are accountable. So while none are under the law in any way as a formal, formal code or rule of life, there is a transcendent glory of God's standard reflected in the law. And that standard is unchanging, as unchanging as the very person of God. Well, here's the point. All that to say this. It is this glory of God's standard exemplified in the love of Christ that is now said to be the law of Christ. And we are under the law of Christ, which is the law of love. We don't have 613 code laws. We have the law of love. That's what is our standard today. Or what James calls the royal law, James 2.8. This law of love is now to govern our lives. Christ said, I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Really, that's, that's the all-encompassing thing. As believers, we desire to obey the moral law of God which is really the law of God's love. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. We lack the power within ourselves to do it. Right here in Romans 7.22, when Paul says, I delight in the law of God, this is a very strong argument that Paul is speaking here to believers. As a believer, he is speaking as a believer, not as an unbeliever. Nowhere in the scriptures do we find that the sin nature of an unbeliever truly delights in the law of God. In fact, Paul will go on to show the very opposite in the next chapter, as we see here in Romans 8. <clears throat> Romans 8, 7, and 8, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh, totally governed by the flesh, in the flesh, cannot please God. Stephen Cole summarizes... Unbelievers do not have two natures, do not have two natures. Unbelievers do not have two natures warring against each other, and they do not joyfully love God's law in their hearts. Amen. I agree with that. Verse 23 continues. But I see another law. He delights in the law of God, according to the inward man. Verse 23, but I see another law in my members. Where does he see it? In his members, in his body. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, on the one hand, Paul, in the inward man, delights in the law of God. He wants to do the right thing. He wants to be obedient. But on the other hand, there is another internal reality warring against the law of his mind, which is to say against his new nature that desires to do right. Note this combination, which I believe... Uh, expresses what the new nature is all about. One who wills to do good, 
verse 21. I delight in the law of God, verse 22. The law of my mind, verse 23. This is all indicative of the new nature. But in addition, Paul sees another, another law in his members working within himself. And this law is at war against the law of his mind, seeking to bring him into captivity to the law of sin. This is the battle between the new nature, the desires to do right, and the old sin nature, the flesh, in which nothing good dwells. Thus within him are two contrary principles. The principle of the new nature desires to do right, and the principle of the old nature the desires to do wrong. I got this from George Zeller off the internet. If you're up front, you can see it. Otherwise, you're in trouble. But anyway, uh, on the one side, on the other side. This is why I talk about the Christian is conflicted. On the one side, uh, the one who agrees with and delights in God's law. On the other side, indwelling sin. On the one side, the one who hates sin. On the other side, the flesh in which no good is no good thing. And then the one who desires and, and wills to do good versus ever-present evil. The inward man, the wretched man, the renewed mind, the flesh that is under law of sin and death. So we have a contrast all the way through on the one side, on the other side. Now, when this warring sin nature has its way, it gets ugly. It brings the believer into captivity to the law of sin. You don't want to be there. This is what Paul, as the new man in Christ, hates. He hates it when this happens. This indwelling sin nature is a powerful foe. Its influence is great. So great that James says we all stumble in many things. James 3, 2. When we sin, it isn't pretty. In Romans 7, 14, Paul describes it as being carnal, sold unto, under sin. Here in verse 23, he describes it as being brought into captivity to the law of sin. In sinning, the believer is now following the orders of sin, which is completely contrary to our position in Christ. It's completely contra uh, contrary to the new man that we are in Christ. In the act of sin... The believer is living contrary to who they really are in Christ. To who they really are as far as their new identity, their ultimate identity, the real new person. It's contrary to all that they identify with in Christ. Well, note the emphasis on the mind here related to the inward man, which is to say uh, the new man in Christ. The believer has a new mind, a whole new way of thinking, he now has the mind of Christ, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.16. And the mind of Christ, having the mind of Christ, desires to follow and obey Christ. In Romans 12.2, Paul says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Christianity is a thinking faith, inherently involving the mind. And as believers, we now think differently. You know, it begins with repentance. Uh, repentance means to have a change of mind. We are those who have been brought to have a change of mind with regard to sin and with regard to Christ. We are repenters. 
In contrast, the world is largely governed by feelings. There's not a lot of thinking that goes on there. Uh, feelings of the flesh, in keeping with what Paul calls the futility of their mind, Ephesians 4.17. Ephesians 2.3 says they are fulfilling the desires of the flesh. Ephesians 4.19 says being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness. In other words, they are acting, as, as Peter says in 2 Peter 2.10, like natural brute beasts. In other words, they just go by what feels natural. They're natural feelings. And boy, I'll tell you, sin, the old sin nature will love to take you where it feels like going. And those who do not know the Lord do not have a new nature. They do not have the Holy Spirit, and they cannot know the things of God. In contrast, believers now have spiritual insight. We have now come to see the light. And we are now able to spiritually judge all things, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.15. For the believer, it is no longer just about going by feelings. We now have insight from the Holy Spirit. We now have a, a new mind, uh, the mind of a, of a born-again Christian. Now, weak or immature believers go by feelings. They are tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. They're all over the place. So I feel this, oh, I feel that, whatever. And by the way, sin is always irrational when filtered through the grid of Scripture. It never makes any sense to the enlightened mind. Now, the spiritual battle is about the mind. It's about the mind. We know, we have insight about the truth of Jesus Christ, and we desire to live accordingly. And yet we feel pulled in another direction, like the, the lies of sin, like this sin will somehow satisfy me. It will somehow enhance my life in some way. It's a, it's a battle in the mind. Believers now have a spiritual mindset, but at the same time they still have the flesh with its pull towards sin. And without the help of the Holy Spirit, the believer is brought into spiritual bondage by the sin nature. Now, this is not the believer's positional orientation, but it is their functional position when sin has its way. Now, when we rationalize sin away, we are brought into captivity to the law of sin. Sin is now ruling, and we suffer spiritual defeat. Romans 13, 14 says, Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. You see, all sin needs to have a victory is a little compromise. I kind of like this illustration, right? Uh, just once it couldn't hurt, but one sin leads to another sin, and pretty, pretty soon you're on, your, on the road to captivity here. Sin is having its way in your life. Whenever we try to win the battle within ourselves through some form of legalism, let's just make some more laws, or dependence upon self, we lose. Self-attempts to conquer indwelling sin is the cause of frustration and defeat. We don't know who uh, the source of this story is, but it's often told, and it goes like this. The story is told that a friend of Augustine named Alpheus was often urged by his neighbors to watch the gladiators in combat. Not to be confused with NFL players today. Uh, anyway, uh, sorry, bad joke, but... He refused to do so because he abhorred the brutality of those barbaric contests. 
One day, however, he was forced into the amphitheater against his will. Determined not to witness the gory spectacle, Alpheus kept his eyes tightly closed. But a piercing cry aroused his curiosity so much that he peeked just as one of the fighters received a fatal wound. It is said then, no sooner had Alpheus discovered the bloody stream issuing from the victim's side than his finer sensibilities were blunted. And he joined in the shouts and exclamations of the noisy mob about him. From that moment, he was a changed man. Changed for the worse. Not only attending such sports himself, but urging others to do likewise. Even though Alpheus had entered the arena against his will, his exposure to evil and eventually addiction suggests what can happen to the best of people when they get one small taste of lustful pleasures. Their appetite is whetted. They develop a liking for what they once abhorred. And without realizing it, they become enslaved. Well, never underestimate the power of indwelling sin. We get this in relationship to unbelievers who are in bondage to sin. The moralist, as Alpheus evidently was, does not have success. But what about the believer? We too are vulnerable. Of course, the world's in bondage to sin. But never forget that you as a believer still have an indwelling sin nature that is closer than a brother. It is ever present. It is ever warring against the mind. It's ever ready to bring us into the captivity of sin. And sadly, we are often overcome. And in that state, we cry out with Paul, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, when Paul cries out, O wretched man that I am, he is not addressing the I, if you will, who delights in the law of God, but rather the I that fails to live up to it. Wretched means miserable. Paul, in sinning, was miserable. Remember, Paul in verse 15 said, what I, what I hate, that I do. He hates sinning and is miserable in the process. Now, if you can long enjoy sin, be sure you're not a Christian. You do not have a new nature. You do not have the Holy Spirit. The Bible says don't grieve the Holy Spirit by which you're sealed until the day of redemption. Yes, Christians can sin, but they're miserable in the process. Charles Spurgeon writes, It was the custom of ancient tyrants when they wished to put men to the most fearful punishments to tie a dead body to them, placing the two back to back. And there was the living man with a dead body closely strapped to him, rotting, putrid, corrupting, and in this he must drag with him wherever he went. Now this is just what the Christian has to do. He has within him new life. He has a living an undying principle, which the Holy Spirit has put within him. But he feels that every day he has to drag about him this dead body, this body of death, a thing as loathsome, as hideous, as abominable to his new life as a dead, stinking carcass would be to a living man. Boy, that's graphic. But that is really what Paul is describing. The wretched believer is a captive of sin and can't escape this miserable condition of indwelling sin. 
He wants to do the right thing, but finds no power to escape from the continual presence, pressure, and influence of indwelling sin. That's a miserable condition. I need deliverance from it. And in that miserable condition, Paul cries out, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, notice what Paul did not say. He did not say, what shall I do? Or, how shall I deliver myself? No, he is looking outward beyond himself. He has come to the end of himself. Dependence upon self and law-keeping has only resulted in miserable defeat. He can't help himself. The law can't help him. Paul didn't cry out what or how, but rather who, who. In effect, he cries out to the Lord and not to the law to help him. As we will see in Romans 8, 4, the law is fulfilled in us, not by us. And that by the Spirit of God whose chief fruit is love. So note this. Romans 6, 6, the body of sin. 7.23, the law of sin, which is in my members. And then 7.24, this body of death. All interchangeable. Indwelling sin is still headquartered in the body of the believer. I hate to break it to you, but it's true. And that's one reason believers can sin so terribly. We can be brought into the captivity of sin. Indwelling sin is still headquartered in the body of the believer... And the members of the body are the instruments that indwelling sin uses. Our bodies are still unredeemed. And as such, the body is often an instrument of sin and still destined to die unless Jesus comes in our lifetime. And I'm hoping it happens before this sermon is over. But our body is still the means by which sin is expressed. Notice we groan over this reality. We get to chapter 8, verse 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves, as Christians, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We're looking forward to a glorified body which will no longer have the sin nature represented. Note the cry here is for a deliverer. Now, I want you to notice something. It's very important in theology, proper understanding, rightly dividing the word of truth. The cry here is for a deliverer. The cry of Romans 7 is not for deliverance from the penalty of sin. No, 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 no. Nope, nope. Remember, that was covered in Romans 3 through 5. This is the cry for deliverance from the power of sin. This section is not about the forgiveness of sin, but rather deliverance from the power of indwelling sin. The concern here is not the day of judgment, but rather about a present tense bondage that he hates. This whole context is about sanctification, not justification. This is talking about deliverance in relation to sanctification. The cry is, who will deliver me? Not from guilt, but rather from the body of this death, this indwelling sin nature. I need deliverance from that. In this whole context, Paul is not talking about some particular sin or some specific sin, but rather he is dealing with the principle of sin in general. 
which is to say the indwelling sin nature that works through the body. The issue here is not how can I be saved from hell, but rather how can I be saved from the delivering control of the power of sin. We are totally dependent upon Christ's work for forgiveness of sin, but we are just as dependent upon him for our deliverance from the control of indwelling sin in the matter of sanctification. We're justified by faith alone, and then we walk in victory in sanctification by faith. It's all by faith. Note uh, here in Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, that's justification. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our sin has been taken care of. Christ died for us, as he goes on to say in Romans 5.8. But then Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, sanctification, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. This is talking about sanctification, how I now live as a believer. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As to justification, believers are perfect before God. You put your faith in Christ, you are declared righteous. You'll never be any more righteous, and you are forever righteous before God. There is nothing on the record against you because Jesus took all of your sin and you've accepted him as your Savior. You're good to go for all eternity. As to justification, believers are perfect before God. But in terms of sanctification, we are in process. I love this verse because it puts it all together in one verse. For by one offering, that's the cross, he, Christ did this, he has perfected forever. That's justification. You can't get any better than perfect and it can't be any longer than forever. Perfected forever. Justification. Those who are being sanctified, that's sanctification. That's, it's being worked out in our lives through a body that is still unredeemed, that still has a sin nature living inside of it. Now, footnote here, when Paul speaks of this body of death, he is really talking about the sin nature that expresses itself through the instrument of the unredeemed human body. That is not to say the body itself is sinful. No, 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 no. It's not. Gnosticism, you know, a heresy that came into the early church called Gnosticism, it taught dualism, saying that the body is itself inherently evil while the spirit is good. Well, that led to two different extremes, both err. Some said if the body is inherently evil, then it doesn't matter what you do with it. You know, you might go down to the temple prostitute. It doesn't matter what you do with the physical body. You might as well indulge in all matter of sinful lusts. Well, others took another track here and said if the body is inherently evil, then it should be treated harshly, right? With asceticism, deprive it of food, comfort, etc. Well, Paul strongly condemns both of these errors. The right teaching is that the body is still in an unredeemed condition, which allows the sin nature to work through it. But the body itself is not sinful. Amazingly, both the flesh and the Holy Spirit of God both reside in the body of the believer at present. And for this reason, Paul in Romans 6.13 says, Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves 
to God. Now, some commentators have a hard time with the view that Paul is here speaking as a believer, thinking, rather, that he is still speaking as an unbeliever. However, I would argue that the closer we get to God, the more we grow in grace, the more we sense and deplore the depths of our own sinfulness. Growth in grace is not growth in self-righteousness, but rather it sees the holiness of God all the more against the extent of our own shortcomings. Verse 25, I thank God, oh, the wretched man that I am, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, and with the flesh the law of sin. No sooner did Paul put forth a desperate appeal for a deliverer than he responded with, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When he says thank God, that is really an expression of faith. He realizes that God through Jesus Christ has provided a deliverer. The answer to our sin problem on every level is our deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true in terms of justification and is true in sanctification. He is thankful that God has provided a Savior from both the penalty as well as the power of sin, and he will yet provide deliverance from the very presence of sin. And all these themes are developed in Romans chapter 8. Now, in salvation, we have been saved from the penalty of sin by the blood of Jesus that cleanses from all sin. But in deliverance from the power of sin, catch this, we are being saved through the lordship of Christ. That is through our identification with him in his reign over sin and death. Being delivered from the penalty of sin is a forever established reality. Being delivered from the power of sin is an ongoing reality that will be completed in glorification where we will never sin again. The great truth of sanctification builds on our identification and solidarity with Christ. This is freeing truth for the believer. And this is where the walk of faith comes in. This is where the know, reckon, and present of Romans 6 comes in. The victory is God's, but he gives it to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ultimately, complete deliverance awaits the coming of Christ and resurrection glory. In these bodies, we will struggle with indwelling sin until we get to glory. In the resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses this very same language, by the way, uh, where he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 1 John 3, beloved, now we are the children of God. That's, that's our position. We are now the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. There's a future, and we don't quite see it yet. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Wow. For we shall see him as he is. Leon Morris says, clearly Paul's words express gratitude for a present deliverance. But it is likely they also have an eschatological, future things, significance. The deliverance we have today is wonderful, and it is. But it is partial and incomplete. It is but a first installment of greater things to come. And Paul looks forward to that great day with his burst of thanksgiving. Now note that with the mind, Paul realizes that in spite of the struggle with sin, 
that Jesus is still our Lord. He is the master who bought us with his blood. We are now alive to him. We are his slaves. We are married to him, as he established in chapter 6. The positional reality that Christ is the believer's Lord is an established truth in the heart of every true believer. The frustration is that we don't always live consistent with the truth that we have come to know. Now, Paul emphasized Jesus as our Lord, both in relation to justification, chapter 5, verse 1, as well as sanctification, chapter 6, verse 11. For the believer, Jesus is our Lord is a bedrock truth. No matter what we go through, Jesus as Lord and Savior is a gospel truth the true believer will never let go of, even though at the same time we struggle mightily with sin. In fact, it is the reality of knowing Jesus as Lord that causes us such consternation when we fail. Now, the first half of verse 25 answers the question of verse 24. In verse 24, Paul asks the agonizing question, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, the answer is that God does it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, deliverance comes not through some legalistic formula or self-help steps, but rather through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the last half of verse 25 summarizes the struggle that Paul has presented in verses 14 through 24. Here's what I want you to see. After stating the truth of deliverance as found in Christ, Paul then again addresses the ongoing conflict between the new nature and the old sin nature in summary form in 25b. So note the order. It's significant. Because it shows that Paul, even after knowing the reality of deliverance through Christ, still continues on with the same internal struggle and conflict he has been describing throughout this whole section. This shows that Paul is clearly presenting the struggle of a believer who knows the reality of deliverance through Christ and yet at the same time knows the reality of the internal conflict between the new and the old nature. Now, because Paul in 25b presents the ongoing internal conflict as one who knows the truth of deliverance through Christ, because of this, some who hold to the view that Paul is describing the experience of an unbeliever want to say that Romans 25b should actually be placed before verse 24. Uh, They want to say the text uh, that says deliverance should be placed before the struggle of 25b. So really what they end up doing is changing the order of the scripture to fit their theology. Just one problem, just one problem, just one. None of the manuscripts present it this way. Now it's most serious to reorder or reconfigure the order of scripture just to try and make it accommodate a particular theological view. And frankly, there's a lot of theologians that do this in a lot of areas of theology. It's really a serious thing. That's a twisting of scripture. We need to take it plainly for what it says. And we need to consider the whole counsel of God all the time too. But the flow of thought is therefore a reason. John Stott says, but verse 25b stands stubbornly there in all the manuscripts. And we have no liberty to erase it or move it. Yes. 
Amen. In my view, Paul is clearly presenting the struggle of a believer who knows the truth of deliverance through Christ, and yet the ongoing internal war of the two natures or principle within him is real. Really, three key reasons, let me just very quickly say, uh, why I think this is the struggle of a believer. We have the contrast between the past tense in verses 7 through 13 and the present tense struggle in verses 14 through 25. Number one. Number two, he delights in the, in the law of God according to the inward man. That's reflective of a, of a new nature. And number three, after uh, presenting the truth of deliverance, he still continues on with the struggle as seen in 25b. Well, verse 25b presents Paul's summary conclusion to the reality of the war within the believer. He says, so then, here's his conclusion, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Again, Paul emphasizes the mind. The emphasis here is emphatic. As Paul says, I myself it is Paul himself as a believer who thanks God for deliverance through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is this same Paul that says, on the one hand, with his mind, he serves the law of God. And yet at the same time, this self-same Paul has this flesh that serves the law of sin. Note here, when he talks about the law of his mind... I think there's a connection. The law of my mind, Jesus Christ our Lord, and with the mind I myself serve the law of God. The law of Paul's mind is the new nature that wants to obey. It's the new mind that recognizes the truth of Christ's lordship that he has just stated in context. It wants to obey the law of God as found in Christ. The law of God is now the lordship of Christ. You want a law? How about lordship? That's what it is. The believer is now under the law of Christ. He is our master. By the way, this is exactly, not sort of, this is exactly what John addresses in 1 John 2, 3, and 4, where he says, now by this we know that we know him. How do we know that we know him? By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Paul himself, as the new man with his mind desires to be obedient to the law of God as found in Christ. The word serve more literally means to serve as a slave. You see, the new nature slavishly wants to obey God. I mean, it's consistent. But at the very same time, Paul, I myself, has the flesh that slavishly wants to serve the law of sin. Hence, he is conflicted. Hence, the war within. And that brings us thankfully, that brings us thankfully to Romans chapter 8, which I consider to be the greatest chapter in the Bible. You see, Romans 8 is the chapter on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned more in Romans chapter 8 than in any other chapter in the Bible. The key to victory is the power of the Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Christ said, without me you can do nothing. Paul said that we are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything is being from ourselves. And again, he says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The story is told of a young boy who knocked on the door of a, of a, of a studio of a famous Italian artist who had died. When the door opened, the boy asked, Madam, would you please give me the master's brush so I can paint like him? You see, the boy had a passion 
to be a great artist like the master, and he wished for the master's touch. So the woman placed the brush in the boy's hand and invited him to try. He made a supreme effort, but soon found that although the desire was there, he could paint no better with the master's brush than he could with his own. The woman then said, Remember, you cannot paint like the great master unless you have his spirit. Indeed, as believers, we now have a desire, according to the new nature, to please the master and to be like him. But we must remember, we need the power of the spirit to live it out. Only by the power of the spirit can we have a life of victory over sin. One in the morning, one of the first things I typically do is open the curtains over our bay window, our main middle bay window. And as I do so, I quote from 1 Corinthians 15, perhaps today we shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment. And then I go to the end of that same resurrection chapter in verse 57, which says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, in the midst of all of our struggles with sin, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand and have our closing song.